the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. All right, let's talk about some of the challenges when it comes to parenting and the whole issue of expectations. I think as parents, we all bring children into this world with a heartbeat, with a desire to want to see our kids successful. You know, we want the kid that will grow up to be uh, the doctor or the lawyer, and yet sometimes they grow up to be the artist. And in that comes a sense of disappointment we have as parents. Then, too, beyond the notion of our ideals for our children not necessarily matching their ideas or their goals. And there's the sense oftentimes you hear of parents who try to live vicariously through their children. Yes, we want a better life for our kids. Sometimes we want our life or the life that we thought we should have had growing up ourselves for our kids. And then the frustrating level comes in when, as parents, we try to raise perfect little children, and yet they turn out to be less than perfect. Is that a fault of less-than-perfect parenting? Let's find out, as we are encouraged to, quite frankly, kind of uh, rethink our thinking and um, realize that we need to love our kids for who they are. We no more need to worry about perfect kids. Jill Savage is the co-author of this new book. And, Jill, great to have you on the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Jarell, can't. There? Ah, there we are. Sorry about that. I, my headphone, for some reason, suddenly failed on me. <laughs> Jill, let's talk a little bit about first some of the ideals that parents bring into this job as parenting. You know, I, I think the the notion that we want a better life for our kids. I mean, that that stands to reason. Um, oftentimes, we want our see our kids grow up to uh, to have better opportunities or be more success, successful, either economically or or socioeconomically than than we were coming up as our kids, and yet suddenly. This goal toward creating these perfect little people can become very frustrating, not just for ourselves, but also for our kids. It really can. And you know what happens as parents is, um, you know, particularly with that first child, uh, that child is, you know, either you're spending nine months uh, preparing for them, you know, as, as they're uh, growing in your, your belly or they're, you're preparing nine months, 12 months if you're adopting. And you are imagining what life is going to be like with them. You're imagining what they're going to be like. You're imagining what they're going to like and the things that you're going to do together. And that's all great. I mean, that's normal for parents to dream. But then we meet our real child. And all of a sudden, over time, as we get to know that child, often the imagined child doesn't match the real child. And so at some point, we really have to 
separate those out and we have to embrace the real child that's in front of us who uh, may not look anything like the imagined child, uh, their, their likes, their dislikes, their abilities may not be anything <laughs> like the imagined child. And so we have to be willing to embrace the real child standing in front of us, recognize they're going to be different than us, they're going to have different goals and different dreams and different talents, and uh, be able to lay that imagined child uh, to rest and really embrace your real child that's standing in front of you. And, and that's uh, one piece of No More Perfect Kids that we look at is uh, really coming to grips and loving our real child. Is this an issue that a lot of parents struggle with, a sense of failure perhaps, because as, as the child reaches a certain age, they, they, they compare the, the imagined child with the reality of what is standing before them. And when one image doesn't match reality, do they get oftentimes get very depressed at the sense that I've somehow as a parent failed my child? I think some of us uh, look at it through the lens of failure. I think uh, others of us look at, at it through the lens of disappointment. Uh, I think some of us look at it through the lens of uh, still trying to make the child into something that they're not really designed to be. And so we become more controlling and uh, demanding the, of, of the child. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, as parents we can respond to this But the most important thing for us to do is to really study our child, get excited about the way that God has created them uniquely. It may be very different than the way he's created us. It might be somewhat different than the way that he's created us. It might even be somewhat similar. Who knows? Uh, One example, I have five children, and uh, four of my five children are musical, and so am I. So I was actually have a degree in music education, and, and so I, I loved that for my kids. I wanted that for them. Um, I was trained to, to play the piano classically. I can You put a piece of music in front of me, I can play it. Uh, most of my kids play by ear. They don't want to mess with the music. They want to hear the music, and then they want to be able to sit down at the piano and do it themselves. I can't do that. My ear is not trained. I don't have that inclination, but they do. Now, it used to frustrate me because, honestly, they really struggled with lessons and learning the classical side of things because they wanted the freedom to be artists. And I was really frustrated with that until I realized that I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And I needed to let them be the musicians that they were, which is very different than the way I'm a musician. And you mentioned um, that this, it, this follows four of the five children. Now, what about the fifth child? <laughs> well, the fifth child has absolutely no inclination towards music at all. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, and he had no, he took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it became very evident that it just wasn't his thing. Uh, he loves to work with his hands. He loves to build things. He loves to uh, run. And so those were, uh, you know, those were skills, talents that uh, I didn't share, but I had to embrace in him. And so, you know, after he did an obligatory year or two of piano, and we, we really studied him and said, you know what? This just isn't a good fit. 
and we had to let that go. There has and to be some sense of surrendering here too, then, doesn't there? I mean, in, in, in the sense that at the end of the day, what we want for them and what they want for themselves, or the talent, skills, and abilities that God has has entrusted to them, may not be necessarily the ones on your list. You're right. So surrender is a piece of it, and the other thing that I think is important is sometimes we do have to grieve. Sometimes we actually have to grieve the imagined child or the imagined activities or the imagined way that we were going to interact with our children. We have to grieve that. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe your child doesn't share any of the same type of hobbies or interests that you have, and you always pictured that you would be able to do X together, and, and they don't even have any desire to do X. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a special needs child. Special needs parents really have to come to grips with this because that, you know, none of us imagine ourselves having a special needs child, a child that's handicapped in some way, uh, that has some physical or emotional or mental challenges. And so, uh, as parents, it could be as simple as our children just have different skills, gifts, talents, wiring, temperaments, personalities than us, and it could be something all the way on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, you know, a parent is dealing with a special needs child, and their life doesn't look anything like what they thought it would. I would suspect there's a big point of perspective here that parents need to be reminded of. I mean, this notion that when kids grow up to be an artist, when what you really wanted was, you know, a doctor or a lawyer in the family— uh, dealing with that disappointment and gaining some perspective on on really kind of the priorities here. We'll talk about that when we continue our conversation after a brief timeout. Jill Savage is with us, co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out. Come back as we answer the question, okay, so when your little artist fails to be the doctor or lawyer that you wanted, what's God telling you on all this? That is this edition of Lifeline with Jill Savage continues. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. No more perfect kids. I mean, let's just be done with it, shall we? In fact, maybe as parents, we need to admit that um, our expectations don't always line up with reality. And and the other issue here, too, as we were discussing with uh, author Jill Savage, who's co-authored the book with Kathy Cox, um, called No More Perfect Kids, Perhaps, too, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing. And by that, I mean, uh, Jill, perhaps the frustration here is we look at them as our kids. You know, we, we raised them, we fed them, we clothed them, we pay for them, um, we nursed them when they were sick the whole nine yards uh, or the whole nine months in the case of mom. <laughs> and at the end of the day, we kind of treat them as if they are our own, when in reality, they were God's children first. Is that part of the issue here that we're maybe failing to recognize that God has endowed them with talents and skills and abilities, and he has a plan for their life and a calling on their life that perhaps doesn't match the one that we've come up with or conjured up in our own minds. Yes, absolutely. You know, Psalms tells us that uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And as parents, our job is to discover how our children are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's really the journey that we need to be on. And uh, one of the things that, that we talk about in the book is we talk about the concept of um, that culturally we believe that there is something called, that we've dubbed, the perfection infection. And the perfection infection is, surrounds us all the time. Uh, we are 
you know, we, we go through the checkout line at the grocery store and we see the front of magazines that talk about perfect bodies, perfect families. Um, you know, they, they give the, the, um, the perception that perfection is attainable. Uh, we watch a television show. We watch a sitcom, and a difficult issue is solved in 30 minutes. We watch a movie, and a difficult issue is solved in two hours. And that's not the way our real life is. And so without realizing it, we often put some pretty unrealistic expectations on ourselves as well as our kids. And then we leave God out of that picture mm. because we begin to make an idol out of pursuing perfection or in some way presenting perfection to the rest of the world. And I think social media adds to it as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's very common to see on Facebook, hey, I'm so proud of my son. He made the honor roll. You don't very often see on Facebook, well, today was such an enjoyable day. We got a phone call from the principal because of uh, something that our child did at school. You don't see that very often. So we are constantly um, comparing our insides to other people's outsides. We're comparing our children's behind-the-scenes behavior to other people's, um, you know, I would call uh, highlight reel behavior, mm-hmm. you know, their their kids seem to behave well when they're in public, and we know what ours do behind doors as well as in public at times. So without realizing it, we often put some uh, really unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others because of the perfection infection, and then we leave God out of the picture. Well, and then there, that leads to a point that you discuss in the book, and I have to tell you something, uh, Jill, my hand's off to you and your co-author, um, and you imagine down through the years, I have interviewed thousands of uh, parenting experts. Uh, you know, many that the listeners are very well familiar with. You know, up to including the you know the Jim the uh, uh, Jim Dobsons of the world, and so on and so forth. But you bring up something in the book that I've never seen articulated in a certain fashion before that ought to set every parent back on their heels, and that is this. Um, we do a lot in terms, as you suggest, of wanting to uh, see our kids. Uh, uh, be more successful at life than we were. We want them to have advantages that we did not have. Uh, we try to pass on this sense of, uh, of perfection, as you suggest, that oftentimes can be very frustrating to a child when they don't have the capacity to be able to, to match us in that level of perfection. We're trying to create kind of a, you know, Martha Stewart kids, I'll call them, you know? Right. They're capable of doing everything, and they do it perfectly. That's what we want, but of course, we also understand that that's not reality. But meanwhile, as as we're trying to kind of force this false dichotomy, this false um, paradigm on our children, it can be very, very frustrating for them. And you ask a question inside the book that I think every parent ought to really ponder, and that is simply this. Of course, we want to say that we love our kids. And most kids, I think, if they stop and pause, uh, will say, yeah, I know I know, I understand in my heart of hearts that mom and dad love me. That's not up for debate. Here's what's up for debate. The big question that I have that's unanswered, and that is, do mom and dad like me? (laughs) Wow. And, And the answer to that question and how our children would respond to that says so much about our parenting skills, doesn't it? It really does. And it, it, it really doesn't, and it doesn't matter what we, um, 
what we say, like, you know, yes, of course my children know that I like them. The bigger question is, would your child really be able to say that? Uh, the, The bigger question is, how do I make my child feel? That really says a lot about our parenting. And that's why... Uh, in No More Perfect Kids, we also give parents the antidotes to the perfection infection. And those antidotes uh, spell out the acronym CLAP so that we can celebrate our kids. We can clap for our kids and see his compassion, to see the world through their eyes, to build a bridge into their reality, to have a sense of compassion and empathy them. And this isn't um, about a popularity contest. I mean, some parents would say, now, wait a minute, Craig, how dare you suggest, you know, my job is not to be a friend to my child. I am there to be their parent. I have to be able to be the one that will give them guidance and correction, draw the line in the sand when need be, provide discipline when necessary. I am not so concerned about whether or not my kids like me or I like my kids. It's important that they know I love them, but I, at the end of the day, have to be the parent. And while all that is well good and very accurate, there is this little subtle thing going on where the child can walk away as you're, as you're pushing this sense of, of your perfection on them and trying to create a child that lives up perfectly to your standards, that a child can walk away readily and really, really have a big challenge here emotionally thinking, I know mom and dad love me, but, you know, I I didn't turn out to be the lawyer that they wanted to be, but I'm a really good artist, so I guess maybe they love me, they just don't like me. Wow, what a, what a burden that is to carry as a child. It really is. It really is. And, you know, I, I mean, I am a firm believer. Parents are not designed to be their children's friends. I mean, all the things that you just said, I would absolutely agree with. Uh, Before I got serious about ridding myself of perfection infection parenting, I was a buck-up mom. Buck-up. Move on. Life Sometimes life's hard. I was just a buck-up mom. I didn't have a lot of compassion. I didn't have... Now, I I gave my kids direction. I gave them uh, certainly a structure in their lives, but I didn't really know them. And that's where that's what we're talking about in No More Perfect Kids is a balance between that. Uh, certainly being the disciplinarian, being the leader of our children, but balancing that out with truly knowing our children. Well, and, you know, that leads also to an important question that we can uh, elaborate upon when we come back after a brief time out, and that is, parent, ask yourself this question. Is the, the time in your relationship with your child when you give them the most attention just the times when they're in trouble? Ponder that as we'll take a time out and come back to more of our conversation. Jill Savage, the co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out, then back with more as Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Okay, here's the big question for you, parents. And that is simply this. Do your kids tend to get the most attention when they're in trouble? And what are you doing the rest of the time? 
addressing that question. The book, No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids for Who They Are. Co-author Jill Savage is with us. And, and Jill, what about that? I mean, I know that we live very busy lifestyles, and oftentimes both parents are working and we're running to and fro. We've got jobs to maintain. We have houses to, to take care of, grocery shopping to do. Got to get the kids to uh, everything from band practice to soccer practice and everything in between. And then we, we think we're giving our kids a lot of attention, but then the, the real one-on-one attention seems in some cases to only really excel when they're in trouble. Uh, it's true, and I think it's an easy way, an easy place for us as parents to, to fall into. Uh, you know, the book is built around questions that each of our kids are asking deep inside their hearts. They're questions that we asked when we were kids. Uh, those questions are uh, simple questions like, um, do you like me? You know, that was one that that you mentioned a little bit earlier. But another question is, am I important to you? And uh, in today's uh, fast-paced life, oftentimes our kids are only getting our attention when they do something negative, when we're correcting them, and that doesn't tell them that they're important. And so I think we really have to um, we have to, and, and also if our goal is to get to know our child, to study our child, uh, only, you know, interacting and knowing them when, when their behavior is negative is not going to help us explore. Uh, so we really need to spend time with our kids. We need to, to dig into, to life with them. And, um, you know, we have a, a son that, are, the one that wasn't musical that I was sharing earlier, he loves to run. And when he was in junior high, uh, we encouraged him to do cross-country. And he actually, when he was in seventh grade, he won the the state cross-country meet. And so here he was, seventh grade, he was winning state. And in our minds, we're thinking, by the time he gets to high school, he is going to be one of the top runners and possibly have scholarship opportunities. So, of course, we encouraged him to keep going and keep going and keep running. And he hated it. He hated cross country. And we thought, why? Why? He loved to run, but why? Well, we spent some time digging into that. And, and instead of just correcting him and pushing him, uh, we, you know, just tried to have some very intentional conversations and really come to understand him. And it took us a while to dig it out of him and figure out what was at the heart of it. But here's the deal. He loved to run. He hated competition. Mm. This is where knowing our child and knowing their heart and and having compassion and love and acceptance and perception. Those are the uh, four antidotes to the perfection infection. So perception is that we're really perceiving or trying to perceive or paying attention to what's going on on the inside of our child's heart. How do we know, though, when to push and when not to push? Because there's another example out of the book that you share with uh, one of the four musical children whom you encouraged to take a semester of choir, and I understand that he went into that thing kicking and screaming all the way, and uh, a couple of days into it said, forget about it, I'm not going to do it, and all these fights, and you insisted he had to complete at least one semester, and slowly, all of a sudden, he's coming home and talking about new friends that he met in choir practice, and they're going to be traveling here to do this, and before you know it, uh, this became, as you suggested inside the book, one of the highlights of his scholastic career. So how do you know that delicate balance of, of when to push and when not to push? That is a great question, and it comes down to knowing your child. 
you, it comes down to paying attention to the little things. That same child, I also share a story in the book, that that same child wanted to play football when he was in sixth grade. And the only place you could do that was on a community team. And so we made arrangements for him. to, And we couldn't imagine. He didn't seem like the football type, but he wanted to play football. And so we uh, allowed him to do that. And he came home the first day uh, from practice, hated it. Uh, In tears, I don't want to go back. And we said, oh, my gosh, of course you're going back. You've wanted this, you know, for years, and uh, you're not, we're not raising a quitter. And so we sent him back the second time. He came back again in tears. I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore. Third day, same thing. By the fourth day, I noticed that he had actually bit his nails down to the quick. He, his nails were bleeding. This child was so emotionally uh, overwhelmed and distraught with the possibility of going to that football practice that I remember the day that my husband and I said, oh, my gosh, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. It's, it is stressing him out in a way that is unhealthy. And we actually allowed him to quit. So then several years later, of course, when we required him to take the music class that he didn't want to take, uh, we didn't see that same kind of stress. We saw his will. And he was not happy that we were requiring him to take choir. Um, but you know what? He eventually uh, grew to love it. And we thought that that would be the situation. So I think it comes down to paying attention to your child, really knowing them. And we could have just kept pushing him to do that football. And who knows where we would have been with him emotionally uh, because it was obviously stressing him out in, to, a, to a place that was actually unhealthy. I think it comes down to really paying attention to the little things, to what's going on on the inside, uh, to having those conversations. You know, our kids tend to like to talk at bedtime. And for parents, most of us are like, I want to just tell you good night, kiss you good night and go to bed because I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) We're just done at that moment in time. And that's a lot of times when we get to hear our kids' heart or they'll share something. And so we have to we have to make ourselves available for those conversations and know our child and pay attention to those little things that often give us a clue to what's going on with them. And it comes back to such an important point of balance, as we've discussed, I think, throughout our visit today. And, and you mentioned this in the book. Parents, we have to be mindful that our kids are created first and foremost. They may, like, they may look like us in the mirror, but at the end of the day, they're created in God's image, not our own. And we know that God has no stepchildren and that he has a unique individual plan and calling on each and every one of our lives. And what you want for your child, as wonderful and altruistic as it may be, may not necessarily be what God wants for your child. And so um, learning to know what the purpose and calling us of their, is on their life, allowing them to experience failure, correcting them without criticizing them, getting to know your kids, uh, particularly as, as you point out, Jill, the difference that it makes when we know as a parent when we should push and when not to push can make all the difference between um, not creating maybe or raising perfect kids, but certainly happy and successful children. And that, I think, at the end of the day, is the most important thing. It is. It really is. And I think the more uh, we get to know our children, and then as they get older, it's also important for them to get to know us and uh, for them to know that our failures, our struggles, 
And because at, at, a, at some point, they need to know we're not perfect either. Life is hard. We all have struggles. We all have things that we have to work through. Uh, failure is a normal part of this living experience. And so the more we help our kids know that those are normal things in their life because they're normal things in our life, that also gives them permission to not try to be perfect, but to embrace the what I call the perfecting process that God has all of us in. Because we mature best through our failures, through our struggles, through coming to know ourselves. Yeah, and and that, that's the perfecting process. Indeed so. And, and, of course, that perfecting process is one that God largely works out. And so at the end of the day, parents, you can have a deep sigh of relief here. No more perfect kids. Just loving our kids or who they are. The new book, by the way, you'll find it at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Amazon.com has it as well. It's published by Moody and uh, our guest today, the co-author Jill Savage. Information, too, on Jill's website at jillsavage.org. That's Jill, J-I-L-L, jillsavage.org. And our thanks to Arthur Jill Savage for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that more and more he's finding both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money. And while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who, uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health. And we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the 
to? You know, that is, that is how I was trained, honestly. And um, I, I, I'm ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where I, um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time, wasting my time, um, because I believed the surgeon's motto, you know, heal with steel, or, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. And some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's not all... Uh, for the patient, we we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency too, maybe? Uh, and I know the, the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe? within some within the medical community that you know why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure i'm the doctor i'm in charge i'm handling this almost sounding as if at a level maybe while not uh openly recognized almost a subconscious sense of well i'm not going to bring god into this equation because in my operating room i am god you know that is that is um I think very correct. Unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted to I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, uh, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one because you, as you detail inside the pages of Grey Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray and what that would mean and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself. You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. Tell us us what happened when when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair and... um my dentist, I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine. And, you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could, uh, so that I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're but, a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> So I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they Sure, do yeah. <laughs> Not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God, guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then I felt this peace come over me. It was, it was just an unusual, I mean, 
the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's, as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why, why am I not at least asking them? Not pushing it on them, but I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist office, where it was just just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point, and um, so I decided to pray with my patient of the day and I walk up to her bed and everything seems fine she's got her two daughters there but there's a nurse there's a nurse and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse I mean this this I've decided has got to be a top secret situation I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm you know one of those nuts or something of course you're a senior medical staff you could have just kicked her out of the room <laughs> I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I you know say okay I'll have to pray another day, and I, I back up to the nurse's station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided you know what I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so you know how we do. We pretend to I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, ah. and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turned right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, you know, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just asked for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. And 
I'm thinking, you know, what what have I done? You know, what what, what is this power? And you know, but I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. And I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I the, the patients looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, Look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care. And that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 